I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. And before we look at this text, I do have an announcement to make. It's been in the bulletin for several weeks now about Gordy Bell. Uh, he's a candidate for an elder. Uh, we have received so much good, positive feedback about Gordy. We're looking to install him as an elder in two weeks. We're still looking for feedback, if you have any, about that process. But in two weeks, we're looking to install him and uh, find ourselves with a plurality of elders here at, at Rock Valley Bible Church. So I'll probably send an email out about that. I'll probably be talking to many of you in the meantime. Um, but that is, that's the case. I wanted to announce that to you. Matthew chapter 27. Before we read our text, I want us to even think about, meditate upon what today is. Today is September 11th. And what comes to mind is what came to mind, what took place four years ago. It really changed the course of human history in many ways. Early in the morning, four airplanes hijacked by Muslim terrorists. At 8.46 a.m., the first of the flights, American Airlines Flight 11, crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. 17 minutes later, 9.03 a.m., United Airlines Flight 175 crashed into the South Tower of the World Trade Center. 18 minutes later, the Federal Aviation Administration grounded flights in all the United States for the first time in history. Seventeen minutes after that, American Airlines Flight 77 crashed into the Pentagon. Thirty-two minutes later, there was a flight, United Airlines Flight 93, crashed in Somerset County, Pennsylvania. By 10.30, less than two hours after the initial impact, both World Trade Center towers were gone, were down, completely destroyed. When all is said and done, 3,000 people died that day due to terrorist attacks in America. And it took only two hours to change the face of this world because at that moment, terrorism had reached a new height of awareness. Never again would we in America look back in the world the same way. In fact, I've heard many people talk about the difference in America before 9-11 and after 9-11. As big and as tragic as those events were, it doesn't compare with the magnitude of the event that we will have to study this morning. I'm talking about the event that changed the world, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This event really is the pinnacle of history. It's a pinnacle of biblical history. When you read your Bible, everything that you read in the Old Testament is looking forward to the crucifixion of Christ. And then everything that you read after that comments on the resurrection, the crucifixion, resurrection of Christ. So much so that Paul would say, when he says, we are a Christian church. And what do we preach? We preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The message of Christianity is the crucifixion of Christ. It is the pinnacle of history. Jesus said the Old Testament Scriptures bore witness of Him. That means if you read the Old Testament... And don't see them pointing to Christ. You've missed the meaning of the Old Testament. And all the New Testament writers, the apostles, 
all the, the epistles that we have, all they are are interpretations of the life crucifixion of Christ. I want to set the context this morning by reading our passage. Matthew chapter 27, verses 33 through 44. When they come to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him, that was Jesus, wine to drink mingled with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And they put up above his head this charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, the one on the right and the one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let Him now come down from the cross and we shall believe in Him. He trusts in God. Let Him deliver Him now if He takes pleasure in Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers also who had been crucified with Him were casting the same insults at Him. I want to look at the two aspects of the cross this text pulls out clearly for us. First is the pain of the cross. The pain of the cross. You know, this is the thing that I normally think of when I think about the cross of Christ. I think about the pain of His beatings. I think about the pain of being nailed to a cross. I think about the pain of, of iron stakes going through His hands and His feet. I think of the pain of hanging from those nails. I think of the pain of struggling to breathe. And you know, we should think about the pain of the death of Christ. But it's very curious to see how little the Bible talks about the actual pain that Christ went through upon the cross. I mean, our text, it's only half a verse. It's really only one word. Look at that last half of verse 35. When they had crucified Him. And for those of you grammarians, you see that this is, it's even in a relative clause, which isn't even the main point of the, ses- of the sentence. It's when they crucified that the soldiers were doing these things. The attention is upon the soldiers. That just sets the time. And, and in fact, even when you go throughout the entire text, the extended narrative, all we see is verse 26, Pilate delivered him to be crucified. We see verse 31, the soldiers led him away to crucify him. And that's it. All that it talks about, about the, the physical sufferings of Christ, is so they crucified Him. They nailed Him to a tree is what crucify means. Nailed Him to a stake. Just pinned Him up there. That's all it says. And you need to ask at this point, why so little about the pain and agony of the cross? I mean, why doesn't Matthew go into great detail talking about all the pain and suffering that, that Jesus endured? I mean, why didn't He talk about what it meant to receive a nail through your hand or wrist, probably. 
Why didn't Matthew talk about the pain of hanging on a few nails? Or, or the pain of trying to lift yourself up to breathe? Why didn't Matthew spend any time explaining the pain of the cramps that Jesus would experience due to the dehydration of, of sitting outside in the, the long sun? Well, I think it's pretty reasonable. I think it's pretty simple. I, don't, I think that Matthew didn't write much about this because those who first received this Gospel account knew very well the, what happened to the process of the crucifixion. I mean, most of the people who originally read this Gospel had probably seen a crucifixion or two or three or ten or fifty. I mean, crucifixion loomed large in their society. This was the common way that Romans put to death their criminals. There were many ways in which crucifixions took place. Practices varied from geographic to geographic region. There, you know, I don't think that there was one exact standard way in which people were crucified. I think the Roman soldiers, different places, merely used the means available to them to pin their victims to the cross and let them hang there until they die. When the Persians who first crucified their victims, they, they practiced them by nailing to them a single, single tall post is where they nailed them to. Or maybe even they nailed them to trees rather than erecting crosses. By the time of the, the life of Christ, the custom of the Romans was to use a cross of some shape and size. But even that wasn't standardized. Some were formed in the shape of a large X. Tradition says Andrew was crucified on a cross like that with arms and legs outstretched, sitting there ready to die. Some were like a capital T in which there would be a, a vertical stake, called it a stipe. And they'd put this beam just right on top of that, forming like a big capital T. Or in the case of Christ, it was probably a, a small letter T with a stake, with a cross beam down here because they nailed something above his head, which was the official charge. Many different ways, but everything was essentially the same. In Jerusalem, during the time of Christ, the Romans crucified their criminals at a place called Golgotha. Now, Golgotha was a well-known place in the time of Jesus. It was well-known for its place. It's called here the Skull. Now, where exactly this is, we don't know. But for the people at the time of Matthew, they would have known... It's like a place known for... It's just called the skull. People knew where the skull was, like we know where Half Dome is. It's in Yosemite. Just a, a geographic place that they say that is the place. We know from John 19.20 that it was near the city. We know from Hebrews 13, verse 12, that location was outside the gates of the city. But that's all we know. But they knew where it was. I suspect this is a place where many Roman crucifixions took place. The crowds knew as Jesus was walking down the Via Dolorosa where it was that He was headed. They knew as they crowded around Him and watched Him struggle with the cross, carrying the beam, and seeing Simon help Him along that path. They knew where He was going. There was no accident. They're going to Golgotha. In fact, you know what? I'll see you there. They could have walked and got there and then watched the procession come because they knew exactly where Golgotha was. I suspect at Golgotha they had these stipes up there, several of them, that they were customary to put the, the criminals upon. And I'm sure there's many people walked by in their commerce of the day. They walked outside the city and they say, oh, who's being crucified today? 
They would have seen many. And so I think that Matthew felt little need to expound the pain of the cross because they all watch crucifixions. But for us, it's a little bit different. How have you seen a crucifixion before? We haven't. Except maybe through movies. So it's do us well to spend a few moments even thinking about the pain of the cross. So I mentioned last week, the cross was invented designed with the intent of producing as slow a death as possible while maximizing the pain. None of the crucial organs of the body were damaged in the process of crucifixion. It's not that they, they damaged the heart so it stopped beating. Right? It's not like they severed the head so the body didn't function. No, no, no. Bodily functions carried on as normal. <clears throat> Victims died from... Lack of energy. They just lacked the energy eventually. It's the cross. You know, I, I remember being in a friend's house in California. <clears throat> and uh, out there in California, the climate's a little bit different. The animals and the insects that grow are a little bit different. And, and I remember seeing these beetles. They're about the size of maybe about a half dollar or so. And these were flying beetles. And I was with a group of collegians and I don't know who came up with the idea. But someone said, hey, let's get some thread and let's tie it around this beetle and we'll put a beetle on a leash. And so we did that. Well, I'm guessing Yvonne, we had, <clears throat> Yvonne was with me. We had maybe five or six, maybe a dozen of these beetles on a leash. And these leashes were thread about five feet long, ten feet long. They varied. And we could take our beetle for a walk. You know, we'd kind of take this leash like this and the beetle would fly around until, boom, it was, it was taut. And then it would, and then it would kind of fly around a little bit and try to escape, and it get taught again. And we had a, a pet beetle. We took for a walk. You know, what? does that sound like fun? Kids, does that sound like fun? It was a lot of fun. It really was for about an hour. And you know what happened after about an hour? Beetles didn't fly anymore. They just preferred to sit there. And eventually, after I'm not sure, an hour and a half, the beetles weren't moving any longer because they died of exhaustion. That's a little bit like what it would be like to die on the cross, except rather than trying to fly to your freedom, you're in pain as you wait for all of your energy just to be totally, entirely zapped. Physicians call this exhaustion asphyxia. Dying because you can't breathe from exhaustion. I think if through the scourgings, Jesus would have lost some blood. Through carrying the cross, He would have lost some energy. But eventually, He was worn down by being upon the cross without having any energy at all. Now, it's interesting here. Once the procession arrived at Golgotha, the first order of business would have been to give the criminals some wine to drink. We see that in verse 34. And this was given as a form of analgesic to lessen the pain. I remember being in California a few years ago. With my wife's family, we... Uh, kids been studying school about the gold rush. And so we did uh, the gold rush tour in California. We went to Sutter's Mill where gold was first discovered in 1848. 
My family went to Sutter's Fort where many of the people came out to California and the gold rush of 49 would first come before they would disperse to seek their fortune of finding all this gold. And I remember on that trip going to the town of Columbia, which was a, um, a gold rush town. It's like a living museum. It was a, you know, basically it's a place they tried to restore and keep like it was in 1849. I remember looking at the old fire engine that they had. Dry place had lots of fires. Fire engine was very important, and it was a real fancy one. I remember going, looking at all the old saloons, which functioned today as modern restaurants. But there's one place I remember. I remember going to the dentist's office and seeing the rudimentary dentist chair sitting there, and then looking at the rudimentary instruments that the dentist would use. And they were pretty crude. I think um, they look about like my tools, pliers and straight things like um, screwdrivers, all to get teeth out. And they have to think about this 150 years ago. They had no Novocaine, which wasn't invented until 1905. And the dental hygiene 150 years ago, it's not like it was today especially in a a rural makeshift town that had only been around for a year or so. No fluoride in the water. Massive teeth decay took place. And I remember pausing with Yvonne at this place, just thinking about the reality of what would have taken place with these crude pliers and miners who had bad teeth. You know who the good dentists were? The dentists who could get the teeth out fast. Without Novocaine, you know what they used to dull the pain? Use hard liquor. Drink it down, schnocker them up so they didn't care much what was happening. The pain would be lessened and by the way, afterwards they couldn't remember it anyway. Well, in some sense, that is the purpose of the wine here. It was to help the pain. And such practice is biblical. Proverbs 31 verse 6 instructs us to give strong drink to him who is perishing. This wasn't fine wine here, verse 34. This was strong drink, like hard liquor to help manage the pain of the cross. It was anesthetic to help the pain that he would endure. And of course, when Jesus realized what had been placed near his lips, he refused it. He was unwilling to drink, is what verse 34 says. He wasn't going to go through with the sacrifice of Christ in any way diminishing the pain or the sufferings. His cup was to endure the full brunt of the sufferings involved. But you know what? The robbers who were crucified with Him, that's verse 38 says, I am sure that they said, yeah, I'll take it. Give me more. Give me more. Give me more. Because they knew that it would help lessen the pain. But Jesus Himself did not take it. The pain for Him being crucified wasn't diminished at all. Jesus felt the pain of the iron spikes driven through His hands. Through archaeological discovery... These, these spikes were about five to seven inches long, probably. Upon his hands, probably they were driven through his wrist, between his radius and his ulna. For placed upon his hand, it probably would have just ripped right out. Now, it wouldn't have broken any bones, but an iron spike right through here would have hit the median nerve, crumpling the fingers into a fist, shooting great signals of pain to the brain. Jesus felt the iron spikes that were driven into His feet. 
He could have been several different ways. It could have been, like most pictures show, Jesus' feet like this and nailed between the second and third metatarsal, right about halfway up your feet so as to support Himself on the bones there. Archaeologists have discovered, though, in, uh, in I forget the name, Havet, I've got it in my notes here, at a place just north of Jerusalem in Gavat HaMitvar, they discovered a heel bone that had been nailed through with an, with an iron spike. It's led some even to think that maybe his, his legs were sideways like this and put both heels together and then a spike driven through. Boom! Both of his heels. Because this, this, uh, in 1968, archaeologists discovered this heel bone, this spike about that long, driven right through it. A crucified victim. That's how they crucified people back then. Jesus would have felt the full brunt of a spike in his feet. But these spikes would have missed major arteries, wouldn't have caused Jesus to bleed to death, but would have caused excruciating pain. You ever stubbed a toe? <laughs> kind of hurts. Jesus furthermore felt the pain fully of hanging on these spikes for hours upon the cross. You ever tried to lift up a heavy object that doesn't have a real good service to lift it up on? Maybe like a refrigerator or something. You know, it's going to be a sharp metal edge and you, you kind of pick it up and you carry it for a while. What do you say after a little bit? you know what, I need to put this down because it's really digging into my fingers and that's, that's hurting. You put it down, you flex your fingers for a little bit, you get some blood going there because your fingers have started to go numb and they say, okay, here, let me try this again. Jesus didn't have the luxury of trying again. It was all the time, just on a few pressure points. would have been great pain. Well, that gives you a small taste of the pain that Christ endured. All I can say, the pain in his death was excruciating. Isn't that the word we use when we think about what is the greatest pain that you have? What do we say? We say it's excruciating, right? Do you know what excruciating means? It comes from Latin. Excruciatus or something. I don't know Latin, but ex. What does ex mean? Exit. Out of. What does crucis mean? Cross. Excruciating means out of the cross. When we say something was excruciating in pain, we say that that is the pain of the cross. Because the cross is like the greatest pain that any human will ever experience. And Jesus experienced the full amount of pain for us. See, Jesus didn't take the mercy of diluting His pain with the wine mingled with gall, which was a mercy. He didn't have the mercy of having his legs broken as the criminals did on either side of him. John 19, verse 32. Listen, to have your legs broken was a mercy because you died quickly within a few minutes because you couldn't lift yourself up to breathe. But without having your legs broken, you had to continue to endure the pain until you were totally exhausted. And Jesus Christ Himself bore all of our punishment. It says in 1 Peter 2, 24, that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. He bore our sins in His body on the cross. It was the pain that, by the way, excruciating pain of the cross is the punishment that all of us deserve. We all deserve that pain. In our minds, we think about such a greatest, great punishment that Christ endured and we say, oh, that's for the worst of criminals. In fact, we don't even think that today, right? 
People die today by lethal injection because it's painless. We, we don't even think today that criminals deserve a punishment like that, much less ourselves. But we don't understand is that all of us deserve such a punishment for a sin in light of our rebellion against an infinitely holy and pure God. The descriptions that Jesus gives of hell ought to press this into your minds. He describes hell as a place of terrible pain that continues forever. I mean, think about the cross. It's excruciating, but at least you expire and at least it's done. Christ isn't experiencing pain now. It's done. These robbers aren't experiencing pain now. It's done. But that's not like hell. Hell's like being crucified for eternity. Jesus said that the suffering of hell is like a man feeling the agony of burning in a flame of fire forever. Jesus made clearly the punishment of hell is eternal. And I say, dear people, this is what we deserve. Only by faith the sufferings of Christ were ever delivered from such a punishment. And I believe all of us, this is a great point of application for us here, if we think about the, the pain that Christ endured for those who believe. We ought to wake every morning and realize that whatever grace we receive from God today, it's far more than we deserve. And whatever pain and suffering that we receive today, it's far less than we deserve. We have to realize and cherish the old rugged cross that becomes for us a crown. That's the pain of the cross. A minor point in our text. Let's get to the major point in our text. It's the shame of the cross. I remember in the early days of Kishwaukee Bible Church. It was around Easter time. Maybe Palm Sunday. I forget when exactly it was. When I was involved in planning a worship service, I asked my dad, who's a physician, I said, Dad, why don't you tell us about physically what happened at the death of Christ? And, uh, you know, there's a great article that I've been helped on as I've studied this about the pain of Christ written in JAMA, Journal of American Medical Association. And it's got pictures there and it talks all about these medical terms and what took place. And I remember my dad was standing in front of... Uh, congregation at Kishwaukee Bible Church had overheads and was explaining from a physician anatomical standpoint everything that happened kind of I, that I tried to do in cursory form for you. And uh, it was very graphic and very good. It was a great presentation. But you know, something, as soon as he sat down, a verse like came shooting into my mind. I thought of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, in which... Jesus said, which is said of Jesus, that Jesus, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And it struck me at that moment that, you know what, these physical sufferings are great, but you know, perhaps the thing that was the greatest was the shame that Jesus despised. The shame of the cross. We're going to see here, time after time after time after time here, in this passage... Again, Jesus being shamed by many people. We're going to see one after another. People coming up, shaming Him, shaming Him, shaming Him, shaming Him. Which made His death all that much worse. The fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 7, right? All who see Me sneer at Me. They separate the lip. They wag the head. Ha! Listen, when the day comes that you die... 
You don't want a bunch of people around your bedside telling you what a fool you have been. You don't want to hear a lot of people talking about your past failures or all these promises that you kept. You, you, you promised that you failed to keep. You made these promises. You're not keeping them. You don't want people around your deathbed like that. What do you want? When you come to die, you want to be encouraged by the truth of God's Word. When you can no longer open your eyes, you, you want a dear friend, a spouse, a son or daughter in your ear whispering, be true. Stand firm. Listen to the Scriptures. You want people around your deathbed singing hymns of the faith. You want people encouraging you, press on. Be faithful. That's what you want when you die. And it would have been well with Jesus if to have His disciples surrounding the cross saying, Jesus, continue in your faithfulness. We know you've been wrongly accused. We know you've been wrongly condemned. Entrust yourself to God. Jesus, you're doing the right thing. Press on. Press on. Keep going, Jesus. But Jesus heard none of that. All He heard was mockings and ridicules and people hurling abuse at Him, which only brought Him to His shame. And I would say this, don't underestimate the difficulties that this was to the soul of Christ. You know, we often say, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. I say, that might be a nice saying, but it's not true. The mouth can do much harm. Gordy shared in our prayer time this morning of how Laura Bush was asked, what's the hardest thing about being the first lady? And you know what she said? Those of you who are there know what she said. She said, the, the hardest thing about being a first lady is seeing my husband being criticized unjustly. It's the words is the hardest thing. Not the fatigue. Not the schedule. Not the demands of everybody. It's hearing my husband being criticized unjustly. And that was Christ upon the cross. He suffered greatly. More than any of us ever will suffer and then, on top of that, these words of these people were mocking Him and mocking Him and mocking Him and trying to shame Him. Let's look. We're just going to go through each of these different groups of people. Let's look first at the soldiers. The soldiers considered Him dead. Verse 35 and 36, When they had crucified Him, they divided up His garments among themselves, casting lots. Right there, before the eyes of Jesus, they were fighting for His clothing. They knew that Jesus didn't need His clothing anymore. In a few hours, He'd be dead. They divided up the remaining possessions among themselves. And that would have been a mockery to Christ. They didn't concern themselves with Jesus. It's almost as if He was out of the room. It didn't matter. We got your stuff, Jesus. We're going to figure out how to have these things, what to do with them. I mean, common courtesy would have been, Jesus, speaking to Him softly up there on the cross, here's your garment. What would you like me to do with your garment? Maybe He would have said, well, give it to Mary or... Give it to John. You know? But, but they didn't they didn't ask him. They just because like, he's dead and he's gone. We got this tunic. We're gonna decide among ourselves. They cast lots, you know, whatever, they rolled dice or whatever to figure out the outer garment. Again, a fulfillment of Psalm twenty two, verse eighteen, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I can imagine them rolling their dice or doing whatever, and kind of these soldiers, five or six of them huddled around, and then the one who won Holds up his garment says, yes, I've got his garment. 
all the while not paying any attention to Jesus because they considered Him dead. Shaming Him. All they had to do was merely sit and watch Him die. That was their job for the rest of the day. So what it says here in verse 36, sitting down, they began to keep watch over Him there. The soldiers were prohibited from leaving their post until Jesus dead. They knew that they weren't going to have dinner at home that night until Jesus was dead. And He would be dead before dinner that night. And they're just going to sit around and kind of joke and frolic and enjoy themselves until Jesus was dead. That's a mockery. Pilate mocked him, brought him to shame by accusing him of treason. Look at verse 37. And they put up above his head the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Though Pilate never made it to the actual crucifixion, He sent the official charge against Jesus to be hung above his head. It read, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. I've told you before, this placard that was placed above Jesus got it exactly right. When the the Jews read that, they knew that King of the Jews meant Messiah. Psalm 2 makes that abundantly clear. It's the Anointed One. Anointed One in Hebrew is the Mashiach, where we get Messiah. Anointed one in Psalm 2 is the king that's installed. So to say that he was the king of the Jews is to say that he was the Messiah. Got it exactly right. But the mockery of also is how this would have come across from Rome's standpoint of view. Because Pilate's accusation contained within it a note of rebellion. There was only one king, that was Caesar. The sign hints that Jesus was a rebellious traitor against the Romans. Anyone who'd claim to be king certainly can't be submissive to Caesar. And yet, we know it wasn't true. He was being slandered in this sense. Jesus was the model citizen who completely submitted himself to the Roman government. He went about doing good. He helped to make life better for society. But Pilate shamed him by accusing him of treason. That's the official charge that would stand above him for all to see. Third, look here about Jesus was numbered with transgressors. Verse 38. At that time, two robbers were crucified with Him, one on the right and one on the left. This was prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men. In other words, in His death, He was around wicked men. And the reason why this shamed Him was that here is that Christ was being crucified with these wicked criminals. And Jesus would have been assumed to be a criminal as well, though He Himself never committed any sin. If they look upon Jesus, they look upon who's being crucified with Him, would cause many to think of Jesus in ways that we don't even dream. And when we think of Jesus, we think of Him as a righteous man. Even those who don't believe that Christ is the Messiah, they think of Him as a good man, a good teacher. And people don't think about Him as a wicked man, but... When these people saw Jesus hanging on the cross with these other criminals, they would have thought, oh, there's a wicked man, thus bringing shame to him. I mean, think about this. Think about what takes place when a prominent religious leader falls in some great sin. Say, embezzled some money or runs off with a church secretary. What happens? The press gets wind of it and bad news 
is news, right? And so they take that news and they spread it all across the country. Oh, this guy, look at what he did. Look at what he professed, right? The one who professed to be a righteous man. He's really a hypocrite. He has been exposed. And today, that's happened so much that the names Baker and Swaggart are synonyms with shame. So those passing by would see Jesus on the cross with these wicked men, it would bring shame to Jesus. So we say, guilty by association. Look at the crowds. Verse 39 to 40. And those passing by were hurling abuse at Him, wagging their heads, just like Psalm 22 said. And saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. The crowds thought Jesus to be a fool. The crucifixion of Christ was done in a public place. Many people would have walked by to see what was happening. If they passed by, lots of times I think they would have looked and said, okay, who are these men? You know, and they would have given the names of the other two. Who's that in the middle? And I think because of his beatings and staying up all night and blood on his face, I think Jesus would have been unrecognizable. And they said, who is that in the middle? They said, Jesus. And I think the crowds would have responded like this. Jesus? (laughs) You mean the great teacher in the temple? That's Jesus? (laughs) That's Jesus up there? You mean the one who professed to be so great and so powerful? That's Jesus up there? The one who said he's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, that's the one. Jesus wants you to save yourself now. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Come down, Jesus. These weren't words of of genuine entreaty or helpful suggestions. They were meant only to insult Jesus. They were words intended to show Jesus how foolish he was. How do you think that you're a great teacher where now you're upon the cross? Have you ever done a stupid thing only to have others notice it and laugh at you? That's what they were doing with Jesus. And for us, I mean, we can, we, can laugh, we can laugh right along with that. Like yesterday at the Hike for Life. I'm trying to figure out where to, where to drive in. And um, I, I go to drive in and like I miss the parking spot. And Nick, where, where's Nick? He was laughing at me, thinking, oh, Mr. Brandon, you need to figure out how to drive. And, and I did. I was bad. So I backed up again and went in again, and I was still on the line. So I backed up even more and finally, almost hitting their van. And they're saying, hey, you've got to be careful of this, you know. And we can laugh that off, okay. <clears throat> but Jesus here is called, being called the ultimate fool. It's not just a stupid thing. This is a stupid thing he did with his life, is what they were saying. This wasn't a laughing matter. Seeking to make fun of Him is what they were doing. Wagging their heads, mocking Him, just like Psalm 22, verse 7 says. It was all the shame, Jesus. The custom of the day was when people were being crucified to do this. I mean, this, this is what you want to do. You want to shame the criminal. That's what they were doing. Let's look at the religious leaders. Verse 5. I'm sorry, point number 5. Sub-point number 5, verses 41 through 43. Look at how many people are in the same way Just like the crowds were in the same way, it's the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders. That pretty much brings everybody up there. Chief priests, scribes and elders, that's everybody, all the religious leaders. They're mocking Him in the same way. Oh, maybe saying different words. The same intent. In fact, even um, 
If you look at how these things were said, it's almost as if these guys were like, <clears throat> thanks for gathering and assembling today. I am going to preach to you a sermon and our great object lesson is Jesus Christ. <laughs> look at Him high upon the cross. Look at Him. He saved others, but He cannot save Himself. He's perishing. Certainly, He is not the Savior. Don't trust in Him. He can't save you. He is the King of Israel, or so He says He's the King of Israel. That's what the sign above His head says. But is He really a King? Are kings crucified like this man? Certainly not. He's not a King. Let Him now come down from the cross and we shall believe Him. He now has every opportunity to come down to show Himself who it is He claimed to be. All He has to do is climb down from the cross and we'll believe Him. Jesus, climb down. See, He's not the Son of God. Let Him come down from the cross. The psalmist said, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he takes pleasure in him. Let's wait and see if God will rescue him. Didn't the psalmist say he'll give his angels charge over you? Let's see the angels rescue you, Jesus. He claims to be the Son of God. He's not. That was the attitude with which these high priests were mocking Jesus. Unless you realize these mockings only took place in the days of Jesus. Realize these mockings are similar to things that go on today. I've heard a few people in my lifetime mocking God as I'm witnessing to them of the Gospel of Christ. They say, oh, you believe in God, do you? Well, if God really exists, if God really exists, why don't you have Him strike me dead here in five... I'll give Him five seconds. Have Him strike me dead. One, two, three, four, five. God hasn't struck me dead. God is not true. It's the same mocking that these people were doing. Certainly Jesus could have come down from the cross. Jesus said He had authority, Matthew 26, 53, to summon 12 legions of angels. 72,000 angels could have come right then. God could have delivered Him. God could have floated Him off the cross right down to the ground. Certainly God can strike people dead in the next five seconds. He's done it before. Nadab and Abihu died instantly when they mocked God. But you know what? In His mercy, God remains silent when people challenge Him like that. And Christ, when mocked, was silent as well. Right? That's 1 Peter chapter 2. While being reviled, He didn't revile Himself in return, but kept entrusting Himself to the Father. And it's really for the greater good that God refused to allow any of these things to happen. For the greater good, God didn't save Jesus. And should Jesus have saved Himself? You know what? We couldn't be saved. There'd be no atonement for sin, and yet Jesus was mocked upon the cross as if He was a weak, impotent imposter. That's the shame of the cross. Let's look at the criminals. Even the criminals joined in the act. Look at verse 44. And the robbers who had been crucified with Him also were casting the same insult at Him. It's also, they're doing the same insult also. They were joining the crowds. They were joining the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees mocking Jesus. Luke tells us in his Gospel, one of the two robbers confessed his sin and requested mercy in his kingdom, which he did receive. But before doing so, he was caught up 
in the wave. Luke 23 says that one of these robbers said, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Exactly what the high priests are saying. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? Then save yourself. You know better than we are, I think, Jesus. How can you claim to be innocent? You must be a criminal. Surely the Romans wouldn't put to death an innocent man. You are a sham, a disgrace, Jesus. That's what these criminals were saying to Jesus, mocking Him, verbally abusing Him. And the words coming from fellow crucifiees, whatever you call those, I'm not sure, fellow people being crucified, serves only to heighten the shame brought upon Jesus. I mean, see, it's, it's one thing to be mocked by people on the ground to Jesus, but it's another thing to be mocked when you're being crucified right along with Him. See, it's one thing for a crowd to boo an athlete for his own performance. But I'm telling you, it's another thing altogether when his own teammate rises up and boos him as well for his bad performance. These are supposed to be teammates. That's why it makes Judas so bad. He's a traitor. So it makes this mocking so bad that they're all being crucified together and yet they're hurling abuse at Christ and Christ through it all kept silent. The cross of Christ is filled with shame. The, the soldiers considered Him dead. Pilate accused Him of treason. Jesus was numbered with transgressors. The crowds called Him a fool. The religious leaders challenged His integrity and the criminals insulted Him. But probably the worst of all is not in the text. It's found in Galatians chapter 3. Let's turn in your Bibles over to Galatians chapter 3. We'll end this morning. Just one thing to be mocked, cursed, abused by mere men. But when God joins in the act, it gets pretty bad. It's the shame of the cross. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, right? Look at the end of that verse. It says this. It is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Or as the reading says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a cross. This was written years beforehand. Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. Moses spoke about the one who hangs on a tree overnight is accursed by God. So as the Jews think about the cross... They thought Deuteronomy 23 of the shame that God spoke of about those who are left to hang and die on a tree, on a cross. God has pronounced a curse upon them. So God even brings part in the shame of the cross. But the good news comes from the first part of Galatians chapter 3. It says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And again, we come to this concept of substitution, which I've talked about the last couple of weeks. Jesus took the punishment that we deserved and Jesus took the shame that we deserved. So we failed to live according to the law of God. We are cursed. And yet, as Christ Jesus took the curse upon Himself on the cross, we are no longer cursed, but we are blessed because we deserve the curse of God but Christ Jesus was cursed in our stead on the cross. And thus, He's redeemed us and set us free. And to be redeemed and set free of your sin, you simply need to look to Christ and believe and trust in the sacrifice 
Believe and trust that He took away the pain that you deserve and that He took away the shame that you deserved as well. That's the message of the crucifixion. Next week we'll look at the death of Jesus. Let's pray together. <clears throat> oh Lord, I pray that You would use these words, weak and feeble as they are, to call us to remembrance once again of the wondrous cross of Christ, that instrument of death that has become an instrument of life to us. I pray that we might never escape the realities of the brutality of the cross. I think today, the cross is made into jewelry, a pretty thing. And yet, far from that, God, it is an instrument of torture. It's torture that we deserve, Lord, so impress upon our hearts. As we survey the wondrous cross, God, may our hearts melt. May we look to the cross and realize it's there that is our hope and is our joy. I know that this message comes differently to different hearers. To those who are like the Jews... cross is a stumbling block for how can blessing come through that avenue of a curse and to those who are like the Greeks intellectual and all that they think of the cross is foolishness bizarre God dying but to us who are being saved the cross is the power of God and so God I know as the message of the cross has been communicated today that there have been different responses some have thought it to be just foolishness Some have stumbled upon it, but some of us, and I trust the majority of us here this morning, have seen it to be the power of God. Have seen it to be the thing in which we boast. We boast not in our greatness, we boast in the greatness of another. Have seen it to be our only hope. That's our only message. As Paul said, I preach Christ and Him crucified. So Lord, may that be our hope, may that be our boast. I think even as we have several more songs that we sing, about the cross of Christ. Stir our hearts in genuine affection and praise and adoration of You. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.